Good day to you. This is Detroit Today. I'm Laura Weber Davis. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, if you are interested in talking politics, as we're going to do all day today, you can join me and Stephen Henderson. We will be at Rosie O'Grady's in Ferndale tonight at 6 p.m. We're going to be talking politics and we're going to be drinking some beers and relaxing. So please join us at Rosie O'Grady's in Ferndale. Uh, All right. So today, the electoral map is changing. Some states that used to be a safe bet for one major party or the other, they're becoming swing states. And a number of former swing states that used to decide presidential elections are not looking so competitive this year. How much of that has to do with the unconventional nature of this election? And how much of it has to do uh, more to do, really, with a permanent shift in the American electorate? We want to hear from you today. Uh, The phone number is 313-577-1019. Again, 313-577-1019. Do you think that Michigan is a swing state anymore? And could Donald Trump win Michigan, even though we haven't picked a Republican president since George H.W. Bush? 313-577-1019. All right. I'd like to introduce my first guest today. His name is Matt Grossman. He's the director of the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State University. Uh, Mr. Grossman, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. All right. So what do you make of this shifting map? What is standing out to you, uh, especially as you sort of look at at the states that are, you know, moving more purple or perhaps becoming less purple? Well, first, we should put it in a little perspective. Uh, the, the actual year-to-year uh, correlations between which states are uh, most competitive are actually increasing rather than decreasing. Uh, so the uh, electoral map of swing states uh, this year looks quite similar to the one in 2012, looks quite similar to the one in 2008, uh, and is actually more similar from one election to another uh, than uh, we saw, for example, in the 1980s or the 1990s. Uh, so uh, we pretty much have the same list of swing states, uh, but there is uh, some slight change this year due to some acceleration of uh, big demographic trends, one being that the Democrats are doing a lot better among minority voters over time, and the other being that the Republicans are doing better among less educated uh, white voters over time, and both of those trends have accelerated this year. So the term swing state, is even a viable term at this point? I, I sort of feel like If you look back at maps from, you know, the turn of the previous century, everything looked completely different. And so you're talking about states. Shouldn't they all just be considered swing states in their own right because their demographics can shift over time anyway? So what's the point of even labeling very specific states as being swing states? Well, from the candidate's perspective, it's really not about whether a state could potentially uh, go one way or the other. It's really about whether a state could make the difference in the national election outcome. So they're going to be looking at uh, states that are likely to mirror the national vote uh, in deciding uh, whether uh, they devote resources to advertising and candidate visits uh, and other uh, forms of campaigning. So, uh, you know, it's not the case that we couldn't possibly see uh, an election where uh, a one uh, where, where either candidate uh, won uh, in a lot of states. It's it's that those states wouldn't be likely uh, to make uh, much of a difference. So, is it theoretically possible that Hillary Clinton could win Utah uh, or that? Uh, Uh, Donald Trump could win Illinois. It's theoretically possible, but there's no scenario under which that would actually make the difference in the election outcome. Uh, So the candidates tend to concentrate their resources uh, for that reason, not because so many states are unwinnable. 
Donald Trump has sort of been uh, an unconventional candidate in this regard because he has focused a lot of his resources, at least energy, it seems like. I don't know about uh, financially, but his energy seems to be focused on some states that are considered unwinnable for right now for a Republican, including his own home state of New York. Um, that emotional pull from Donald Trump, do you find that interesting as you're sort of looking at, at how these candidates are planning out their battle strategy? Well, I would say it's actually most surprising how little uh, things uh, have changed, given how uh, different of a candidate uh, Donald Trump is and, and what a different primary electorate uh, he appealed to uh, this year. It's sort of surprising that in the end, the Republicans are lining up behind the Republican candidate and the Democrats are lining up behind the Democratic candidate. And there's only marginal evidence, um, you know, at the at the sort of very most uh, already swing states that we're seeing slightly uh, more movement toward the Democratic side in states with large Latino populations and slightly uh, moves toward the Republican side in states uh, with large populations of of lower educated white voters. Uh, But nothing like what you might have expected if you listened to to Trump's Trump's rhetoric earlier this year about uh, what states he was going to contest. So, Looking out into the future as far as how things are shifting all over the map, um, I I believe it was just a couple years ago we had the first minority-majority kindergarten class uh, starting school, which means that in in the not-too-distant future we're going to see an electorate that begins to – white people will not make up more than 50 percent of the electorate. And I'm curious how that changes things for the the electoral college and the way that that the states are made up. Well, first of all, it's going to take longer to get to a minority white electorate than a minority white country. So um, uh, Latino voters especially are voting at uh, lower rates, same with Asian voters, uh, than uh, than whites. And so uh, that those trends are, are going to take a long time uh, to develop. Uh, but the surprise, again, has been how stable the national 50-50 race has been, uh, given uh, changes in uh, uh, the electorate towards diversification. So at the same time that minority voters uh, are moving into the Democratic column and becoming a bigger piece uh, of the Democratic electorate. Uh, white voters are, have been moving out of the Democratic Party and uh, towards uh, the Republican Party. So uh, it's, uh, I think there has been uh, some real shift in the Democratic uh, direction in right. presidential elections. Uh, but uh, if we continue to see uh, those two trends coinciding, you won't see any big shift if the Dems lose white voters as they're gaining minority voters. I can't help but spend a lot of this time during this current cycle uh, reflecting back on the auto- the so-called autopsy report from the Republican Party after um, President Obama won a second term that basically boiled down, said our party needs to be doing a lot more to think towards the future about appealing toward people of color, toward appealing toward marginalized communities, because this is the way that things are going to be moving into the future. But that doesn't seem to necessarily be the shift that the party has taken this turn. So I wonder how long does it take to implement that sort of strategy that would be effective once the electorate does shift? And I mean, even though that's a, a long way out, so would that strategy take a long time, I would think? 
Well, there doesn't seem to have been any historical period where the Republican Party has reacted to loss uh, by sort of moderating their uh, policy positions. They tend to always interpret it as, well, we didn't nominate a, a true conservative and we need to, to do it next time, uh, rather than, than uh, saying that they, they really need to, to shift their policy positions. And I certainly don't expect them to shift, say, uh, leftward on immigration after this election. I think they've learned that their electorate uh, is even more uh, opposed to immigration than they, they previously uh, thought. Um, but I would point out that, you know, since that autopsy, they won a midterm election in 2014 by a, a large uh, margin uh, and have made huge gains uh, in the states uh, throughout the Obama administration. So um, they, they do have a disadvantage in, in the four year, every four years in the presidential election, uh, but it, it hasn't necessarily destroyed the party. It's made the party uh, just a gain in uh, state and congressional races in midterms. I'd like to take a couple calls here in just a moment, but uh, quickly, um, you know, Donald Trump has spent a lot of time in Michigan lately. Uh, Hillary Clinton, not so much. She sent surrogates. She sent her own family members in in the past week or two. So what explains that um, Donald Trump spending so much time here versus Hillary Clinton? Shouldn't this sort of be something that she should lock up by appearing herself, especially, I would think, in the southeast Michigan region where so much of her base really is going to turn out in the state? Uh, she's, uh, it seems to be concentrating a, a bit more on her easiest path uh, to the Electoral College uh, victory, which seems to run through states like Virginia and Colorado, uh, and uh, has uh, not, not shown that much fear of uh, losing Michigan uh, in a way that would uh, cost her uh, the, the national election. Uh, we've actually seen less uh, resources uh, dedicated uh, to Michigan uh, this year than in previous cycles. The candidates really aren't advertising uh, locally uh, here, uh, but uh, certainly uh, Trump uh, has been here and has pursued a strategy of uh, trying to lock down the industrial Midwest uh, as his best path uh, to the nomination, I mean, to the presidency. Uh, Matt Grossman is our guest right now. He's the director of the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State University. Uh, 313-577-1019. If you'd like to join the conversation, we're going to be talking about the electoral map this morning. 313-577-1019. Let's go to Tom. Tom is in northwest Detroit. Tom, welcome to the program. Yes, and good morning to everyone. According to what I saw somewhere, uh, Hillary's got Clinton has an 11-point lead here in Michigan. And at that point, you know, if it, if it holds steady, Michigan is, Michigan is going to go remain blue, okay? Sure. And, and, and that kind of thing. But um, it was something else I wanted to say, but my thoughts ran away. Well, that's okay. Uh, that happens frequently. <laughs> Grab yourself a cup of coffee, Tom. Matt, uh, let's take it, this, take it from here. Um, the thing about Clinton showing in the polls that uh, she has a significant lead over Trump here is interesting. We were discussing this morning because so, too, did Bernie Sanders have a significant I mean, so, too, did Clinton have a significant lead over Bernie Sanders in the primary polling. Um, but that wasn't the case. It, it was sort of the surprise victory for Bernie Sanders. It wasn't surprising to his supporters because they were so passionate about him. And if there's any group of supporters right now who are passionate about their candidate, it's Donald Trump supporters. So. Uh, how much should we be following these polls? I mean, we always have to approach them with a healthy level of skepticism, but is there a significant chance that this would go sort of like our primaries went? 
Well, we didn't see any uh, evidence in the primaries that Donald Trump uh, overperformed uh, his uh, poll numbers. Uh, we did have the, the one uh, result in, in Michigan. We, we happen to be the only uh, survey research unit that had the race close. Uh, but uh, the, the the difference uh, was was just that we had a whole lot of people uh, show up to vote who don't usually vote in uh, in primary elections, and we hadn't had a competitive Democratic presidential uh, primary uh, since 1992. So it was uh, hard harder for pollsters to to judge who was going to show up. I think in general elections, it's not as hard to judge uh, who is going to uh, participate uh, based on uh, past uh, voter history. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be a huge sign uh, of an influx either in registration or a voting intention of those uh, lower educated white voters who may not uh, traditionally uh, participate and were seen as a part of uh, Donald Trump's uh, coalition. Uh, but where I do think uh, it's, it's worth having some skepticism is about the current performance of third-party candidates uh, in the poll that the caller uh, mentioned uh, from this morning. I think the rate was 43 to 32. So I can guarantee you right now that uh, Hillary Clinton is going to get uh, over 43% of the vote in Michigan, and Donald Trump is going to get over 32% of the vote. So uh, that poll is really just showing uh, people kind of uh, avoiding uh, making a choice between the two major uh, candidates, sure. uh, and uh, we expect uh, the third-party numbers and the undecideds to, to decline as we get closer to Election Day. Matt Grossman of Michigan State University, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. So coming up next, we're going to continue talking about this electoral map. We're going to talk specifically about how our district lines are drawn. Gerrymandering, a word we really, uh, you know, captures our emotions around here. So we'll talk about that coming up next with David Daly. He's written a lot about this. I can't say the title of his book, and I'll explain why after this pitch break. Give now, give often. This is Detroit Today. It's 1019 WDET. Good morning. You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Travis Wright in the studio with WDET Sandra Swoboda. And you're joining us right now on the final day of the WDET Fall Fundraiser. We're just here to remind you for a moment why you rely on WDET. You do it for the news. You do it for all kinds of information locally and globally. You do it for music and thought-provoking storytelling. And today is the day to support all that you hear with your very generous gift. Right now, when you make a contribution to WDET, we're automatically entering you to win an iPhone 7 or an Apple Watch. So maybe that's just the extra incentive that you needed to say WDET is well worth my $10 a month or you want to make a one-time flat contribution of a thousand dollars i would urge you to do that i'm talking to all my hedge fund hedge fund managers out there you got the deep pockets well now's the time to prove it go to wdet.org come on all you big ballers out there need to step up and give 800-959-9338 or WDET.org. And to all Travis's friends who manage hedge funds yeah. and the rest of you who support public radio. Yeah, don't you, a... I'm notoriously <laughs> always hanging out with hedge fund managers. They're here managers. every day, yeah. yes. Uh, I would like to tell you a little bit about what an annual gift of $1,200 or more will will kind of, will get you. We're going to welcome you into the WDET Leadership Circle. You'll be part of a special group of the WDET membership, and you will receive invitations to exclusive events. So for $1,200 or more, you will get uh, a subscription, and I'm making air quotes, to the quarterly lunchtime leadership hour. 
Uh, we, you will join reporters and producers in the newsroom, and it's a, it's a fun place, I assure you. And we'll have casual conversations over lunch about what we're working on, what you'd like to see us covering, uh, what you think on the issues that you hear every day on WDET and the conversations with reporters and hosts. You can meet and learn from other well-informed members of the community and visiting journalists. We get people from NPR through the station often. Uh, reporters from the Detroit Journalism Cooperative work here as well. So make your gift of $100 a month as a sustaining member or that one-time gift of $1,200 or more. Either way you choose to give we will say thank you with invitations to special events and increased access to behind the scenes work here at wdet do it now 800-959-9338 or online at wdet.org i seriously do that i want to talk to all the doctors the lawyers the very successful business people politicians families of wealth now is the time to make a huge impact on wdet you have the means to do so it's a tax deductible donation april is going to be here before you know it detroit today is where you hear about all the topics that matter to you it's where you hear intelligent conversation with stephen henderson helping you make sense of all these debates informing your point of view this is radio well worth your support we can't do it without you if you have the means to give twelve hundred dollars to wdet we spend that money wisely it's a smart investment. So why don't you go ahead and make it right now at WDET.org. This election has been unpredictable with countless twists and turns along the way. Our reporters have guided you through it all, bringing you the first draft of history. Now we're in the final months and we need your help. Make a contribution to this station and ensure that you will continue to get the coverage you depend on. Thank you. I'd like to give a special thank you to some people who have come in this hour with gifts to WDET. Fran in Harrison Township and Vicki in Wald Lake. Thank you so much for generously renewing your support to this station. It warms my heart to know that there are people out there who believe in the work we do and are willing to step up and support us financially so that we can bring you the news and information all year long. The programs you rely on, the programs that make you smarter, the programs that help you understand what is going on, not only in your immediate community, but really around the world on Detroit Today, National Public Radio programs, and everything else here at the station. You can be part of this. We will give you a shout out. Number 800-959-9338 or go online at WDET.org. Look, American democracy just can't afford to be without unbiased public radio stations. And your station, WDET, cannot afford to exist without your support. Right now with your gift, you're automatically entered to win an Apple Watch or an iPhone 7. It's a smart investment. It's one that you're going to feel good when you make. And now is the time to make it. Consider a gift of $10 a month right now at WDET.org. You're listening to Detroit Today on WDET. I'm Laura Weber Davis. Thanks so much for joining me. Hey, and if you want to join me and Stephen Henderson and Jake Neer and Sandra Svoboda, talk about politics and drink beers, you can join us tonight at Rosie O'Grady's in Ferndale for our Smart Politics Happy Hour. That's 6 p.m. tonight. So if you're listening to the rebroadcast and it's 7 p.m., um, drive slowly and safely, but drive on over into Ferndale at Rosie O'Grady's. We'll see you there. So Michigan is still referred to by many media outlets as a swing state, but our great state hasn't really been a purple state since 1988. Michigan is as much a swing state as any other at this point and clearly leaning Democratic in presidential elections. And yet nine of Michigan's 14 congressional representatives are Republicans. 
So part of the reason for that is because Republicans tend to vote more often in non-presidential election years. But it's also because of the way our districts are drawn. That happens around censuses that are censuses, if you will, that are taken every 10 years. Republicans win by respectable margins in their districts, but pale in comparison to the overwhelming majorities Democratic politicians receive in their elections. So why is that? Our first guest this mo- our guest this morning argues that it's because our d- districts were drawn in such odd shapes to force Democratic voting blocks into the same districts and leave the more moneyed parts of our state in Republican districts. His name is David Daly. He's a journalist and author and the former editor-in-chief of Salon.com. He's also the author of a book about gerrymandering and the electoral map, the title of which we cannot fully say on air, but it's Rat Bleeped. And the subtitle is The True Story Behind the Secret Plan to Steal America's Democracy. David, welcome to the program. Good morning, Laura. Thanks for having me. No, thank you so much for being here. I, you know, I'm just, we've always talked about this district specifically, which you mm. focus on in your book, the 14th district here in Southeast Michigan. Uh, we used to call it the super district because it's in the shape of an S. But you refer to it as looking more like a snake with a sinister plan, essentially, and a snake with an odd-shaped head with a crown on top because it also encircles uh, a garbage uh, garbage dump that um, is just kind of drawn in at the top of the district. So obviously we're talking about a very strange shape. How typical is that for uh, districts that are in these overwhelming Democratic areas? Well, um, I think it is um, sadly become the norm. Um, Michigan is one of those states where you have, like you said, 14 districts, nine of them controlled by Republicans, right? five of them controlled by Democrats. And yet the Democrats in 2012 got 240,000 more votes on the House level. Um, So in order to do that, you come up with creative lines to pack as many Democratic voters as you can into as few districts as possible, and you claim the remaining districts for yourself. Um, The Republicans controlled all aspects of redistricting in the state of Michigan after the 2010 census. This was an intentional, deliberate strategy to capture all of the seats at the table when the new maps were drawn. And the maps that they drew in 2011, the first election on these maps is in 2012, they perform exactly as expected. Democrats win their five races in Michigan with about 70% of the vote. Republicans win their nine with about 57.7% of the vote. And that makes up for 240,000 votes. You waste all of those votes by packing them into a few districts, and you do that by drawing them as oddly and in such contrived fashions as you can. Well, one of the arguments you sort of discuss in your book that jumped to my mind um, before reading as well would be that these districts that uh, the Republican um, con- congressional members come out of and maybe are winning by more more narrow margins, although still significant overall, um, if they're tending to move that direction anyway of a more progressive or more liberal area, and so they're constantly having to be redrawn, at some point is the redrawing process not even really capable? You, you, I feel like you couldn't just draw voters into oblivion, or am I wrong? You 
you certainly can. And I think all you have to do is look at these maps. If you look at the 14th, but then if you also look at the five or six districts that sort of candy swirl around it, it's like a psychedelic Willy Wonka lollipop. If you look at the map <laughs> of, of those districts um, surrounding Detroit, yeah, truly. Um, I believe the statistic is something like you, if you drive from the old Silver Dome to the new Ford Field, you pass through something like six congressional districts along hmm. the way. This is not an accident. These votes are being parceled out in order to slide as many Democrats as possible into one place and in order to parcel out as many Republicans as you can in the others. I think the Farmington Hills cutout along 8 Mile right. is one of the great examples of this. I mean, 8 Mile all the way from Gross Point um, down is, is sort of the 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 axis of the 14th district. Right. So if there's a block there where you cut up and you slide into Farmington Hills. Sort and of looks like an anvil. It's shaped a little yeah, bit like an anvil. Uh-huh. There's a small little piece of, of this that is cut out. And you, you look at the map and wonder why. Well, there's, you know, 10,200 people who live there. It's 71% white. The average income is $56,000 a year. Money Magazine calls it the 27th best place to live in America. It does not look like the rest of the 14th, even though it is close to it. Republicans took those votes and they slid them into the 11th district because they needed to shore up those lines. Um, So Farmington and Farmington Hills share a state representative and not a congressman. Um, It is, this was a very strategic plan. Um, And these maps are drawn with such care and intensity because the technology right now is so good that you can slide a line one way or the other and immediately see what the impact is on the vote. You couldn't do that at any other point in time. I mean, gerrymandering has been around. I mean, it's as old as the Absolutely. Republic. But the tools that the mapmakers have, starting in 2010 and 2011, are more powerful than they've ever been before. And as a result, the lines get stronger and they're tougher to 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 impact and influence. Sure. Uh, David, if you don't mind, I'm, I want to take a couple phone calls here as well. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, we have Chuck in Franklin. Chuck, welcome to the program. Hi. Um, just two quick things. Um, let's, let's all be clear that uh, this kind of uh, gerrymandering, which your guest has accurately described, it's incredible how detailed the demographic data is. But it's being done in Democratic states. Uh, as surely as it is being done in Michigan. So California and Illinois have some of the weirdest-looking districts you've ever seen. Now, the second point is that the Michigan 14th is interesting uh, because Michigan has two majority-minority districts. We have two black uh, uh, U.S. representatives, and we always have for for decades and decades. And uh, part of the reason that we do that, we could have a nice, contiguous, um, solid um, uh, congressional district made up of just the city of Detroit. But if we did that, the Voting Rights Act um, would kick in and say, oh, no, no, you can't do that. You're packing 
um, too many African-American voters into one congressional district, and you're losing a, uh, a U.S. House uh, member who is likely to be African-American. Sure. Uh, Chuck, thanks for those points. I appreciate you raising them. David, what do you what do you make of those two points? Let's start first with the states that are Democratic-leaning, if not strongly Democratic, voting states, also sort of drawing these strange-looking districts to benefit their, their own interests. Chuck makes uh, two very sophisticated points. Um, let me r- respond really carefully. Um, okay. <laughs> in 2011, Republicans had, and I'm not coming at this as a partisan, um, I may have edited Salon and have liberal leanings, but I'm looking at this more as a reporter. Sure. Um, and I went out and reported this book, and the numbers are the numbers. I mean, California is drawn by, by an independent commission. So California is not being gerrymandered by Democrats or, or by partisans. They have a, um, one of the uh, very best independent commission models in the country. Um, in 2011, Republicans had control of drawing 193 of the 435 districts. Democrats had complete control of drawing 44 of those districts. 105 of them were under split control, so both parties had a seat at the table when the maps were being drawn, and then 88 seats were drawn by commissions. And then the remaining ones are seats that only you know, uh, states that, that that might have one representative. Um, so what happened in 2000, so Chuck is completely correct that over the history of time, both parties have used gerrymandering in devious ways. What I'm arguing is that in 2011, Republicans used this old trick in the book in a in a thoroughly modern and different way, and that they were able to by taking control of state legislative chambers across the country, um, get themselves to a place where they had complete veto power over all of these lines to such an extent that you only need 218 to have control of the chamber. Right. They were able to draw 193 of them themselves. Hmm. That gives you a pretty good starting point. In 2001... Um, it was 135 drawn by Democrats, 98 drawn by Republicans. So the change from 2001 to 2011 is stark and strategic. Um, As far as the Voting Rights Act goes, um, I mean, that that is absolutely true. I mean, uh, you know, those what I would argue is that there are ways in the political scientists have shown this, and independent map makers have shown this, that there are ways to draw majority-minority seats that do not have to pack as many voters into these seats as the Michigan map makers did. You can come up with majority-minority seats that Brenda Lawrence doesn't have to win with over 80% of the vote. Um, and you could scatter those seats, excuse me, scatter the rest of those votes into other districts if you wanted to have genuinely competitive elections. 
Uh, Dave, if you before you go, I have one more caller I'd like to to take here. Reg is in Detroit. Reg, thanks for holding on. What's your what's your comment today? And thank you for having me on this morning. I think the um, information about the new device or the new electronic um, you know programs that they're able to use sure. to draw this so precisely is very important. Listen, the question is uh, here to Michigan in particular. We don't have one of those um, nonpartisan commissions that could um, perhaps assist in that. Do you see that as a useful tool? And um, I don't know if you're aware of it, but in Michigan, the legislature's also um, passed a, 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 um, I don't know if it's a law, but it's certainly a procedure that allows them to nullify a, a citizen referendum by just adding a, you know, a small appropriations to a bill and therefore... Right you know, they can uh, negate the impact of a referendum. So right. if the citizens of the of the state decide to go for a commission like that, uh, do you think that would be something that would help with uh, eliminating the impact of um, this gerrymandering? Reg, thanks for that call. David, I, I'm sure that you probably came across this in your research, but we have uh, sort of an ongoing issue with our current legislature of uh, referendum proofing mm-hmm. our bills that are considered You're not more the controversial. Only state, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I doubt it. Um, so, so to Reg's point, though, um, um, please, if you could answer his question as well. I think independent commissions work really well when they are independent. I think what you have to be careful of when setting up an independent commission is whether it's actually just a partisan commission by another name, which sure. means who is serving on this commission. Um, There are many states um, that have set up independent commissions that work. I would say Washington works. I would say California works. New Jersey has an interesting kind of hybrid process. Um, In Iowa, there's a genuine nonpartisan process. Um, And then you have a state like Arizona, which used the referendum to pass a nonpartisan independent commission and ended up just taking a political process and moving it into an even smaller room and making it more intensely political. Um, So a commission can work, but you have to be very aware of how it's being constituted and who serves on it and what it is allowed to consider when it comes to draw the line. Sure. And I'll, I'll just end by saying that you do highlight in your book that one of the members of the actual board of canvassers um, that would vote on whether or not something goes to a ballot actually drew these maps. So <laughs> so it sort of twists in on itself a few different ways. Uh, David yeah, yeah. Daly, he's a journalist and author, former editor-in-chief at Salon.com, wrote a book whose title I can't say, but it's rat bleeped. You can figure that one out for yourself. Go check it out. It's really interesting if you're interested in gerrymandering. David, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. When when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about the legality of the grand bargain. It's coming up next. 